Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Terry Williams, who is the author of Life Underground, Encounters with People Below the Streets of New York, new out from our friends at Columbia University Press. Terry, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Stephen, for inviting me. Uh, so I wonder if we might begin by having you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do and what brought you to this particular project. Well, my name is Terry Williams. I'm at the uh, the New School for Social Research for a number of years now. Um, I'm considered an ethnographer, which means I'm, I look at um, or try and look at the city in a way that captures underground hidden objects, and that includes people. And that includes events. And um, the series that I happen to be uh, discussing today is um, called the Cosmopolitan Life Series, Studies in Transgression. And I did, I wrote five books in that series. This is, this is the last of the five. And it included Teenage Suicide Notes, um, the Soft City, which look at look at sex and business in New York City. Uh, another book called Lay Boogie Woogie, which is Inside and After Hours Club. Um, the Con Men, which is another volume on hustling in New York. All of these uh, these books are basically are ways to capture. Um, um, I would say most of the world that people know a little about in the sense that I was trying to to, to account for hidden, <clears throat> hidden populations for the most part. And um, this particular volume does that as well. There were two people who wrote books about this. I had introduced them to, to, uh, to, to uh, uh, the characters as it were in the, in the book. Um, but the main story of course is um, how is homelessness produced? And in order to capture that or, or to understand that, I felt the best way to do it was to follow people as long as possible, not to do a short three weeks, three months, or even a, a year or two study, but to study as long as I could uh, a, popu a population. I met a man who was called the Lord of the Tunnel and his name was Bernard Monte Isaac. He was 37 years old. I thought the best way to capture that world is to, to not just interview him, but to, um, to provide other kinds of data, as it were, to, uh, to tell his story. So I gave him and others journals to, to write in. I, I uh, they said that they had um, vivid dreams underground. I gave them tape recorders to record those dreams, uh, photographs, of course, as well. So all of that, of course, led to a twenty-year uh, adventure, um, following Bernard and following other people. I had actually uh, counted one hundred thirteen people living from Seventy-second Street to one hundred twenty-fifth Street. I had my counter with me, my clicker, and as I, every time I would see someone, I walked through the, the tunnel. It's, it's about a mile and a half long. And every time I would see someone, I would click in. I didn't actually meet all those folk, but I, I did get to meet quite a number of people underground. Of course, 
during the uh, the I, I would say the the twenty year period, most people either died or or disappeared. So I end up with eight people that um, that I maintain a relationship with, and I wrote about in this book. That, that's a long story, but <laughs> that's part of it. It's a great it's a great story. Um, so maybe let's start by by telling folks just a little bit about what was the space like what was the living space like how were people sort of organizing themselves in physical space and then we'll maybe talk about how it is that they spent their day and how they uh gathered things for for how they gathered money and and food and those things but what should we know about the space where were they living well uh, one of the ways in which this story should be told and, I, and, I, and Stephen, I should start there because I think it's important for the readers, mm -hmm. for the listeners. I wanted to learn as much as I could about this population. So I started at Grand Central Station. Now, Grand Central Station was actually turned into what is called Grand Central Terminal. And at, in 100, I would say 1903, 1904, there's a man named William Wilgus. William Wilkes was the chief engineer for for um, uh, in looking at how you could turn this into a um, a terminal, and so he he constructed these electrified tracks under five or six levels underneath the station, the Grand Central, uh, Grand Central Station, and there's a place there called Track Sixty One. I wanted to go to track 61 and find people so I could interview there. Of course, it was very difficult because you, 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 you're traversing about 20 some odd different electrified tracks to get there. I met a few people. I did interview some people there, but others told me about this place under Riverside Park. And so I went from there to Riverside Park. Imagine just for a moment that you're going into a space that is entirely dark. And you're walking into a space that's dark for several blocks uh, long. You don't exactly know what you are stepping on. You mm -hmm. don't know who can, who can come from different spaces. I understand that underground there is what are called alcoves. Alcoves are, are, are actually uh, ladders that are above the tracks. And and people can see you, but you can't see them, or but you can also hear them. So if you can imagine this kind of darkness and this this sense of, of lost space, and that's what you encounter when you go underground. And that's what I encountered the first time I went. I don't know whether that describes as well as I could. So that's part of it. And then once you're there, you have to figure out a, a way to do the following. How do I eat? How do I get water? How do I how do I traverse this particular space and then carry on a life that is with a certain amount of dignity? And so I wanted to capture that, and I think um, I think I did. But it it did take these many years to do it. Um. So tell us a, a little bit about so so. Um. I guess I I mean I'm I'm interested in the extent to which you. Th 
there are a number of folks who didn't think of themselves as homeless, right? Because they had sort of, of they had a place where they could go on a regular basis for a while anyway, relatively undisturbed. So can you, what was, were there, was there a community there? Was it a neighborhood? What, what kind of social relations among people who were living there did you encounter? Now, there were a number of locations that you can call them location underground where people actually could live. A lot of the early workers, Conrad workers, the workers uh, who uh, were working on the tracks, they had built what are called bunkers. And these were these are uh, or maybe 20, 20 foot by 20 feet long. And they were places where people had, uh, they had, for example, a telephone uh, booth or, or area where you could actually do and then you had other you had one that was just for um like a latrine and then you had another one and so some of these were still in in, in operation so people took those places and started to live there and then others simply took tents there was a man i wrote about called blue tent he had a blue tent and he simply lived in that particular structure there was a lot of rats in that area, and he lived in that in that structure. There were others who had lean-tos, and I said it was it was one structure at what I call um, Cubano Arms, which was a place where a, a, a few people who were from Cuba were, were had moved from the Mariana uh, a boat wreck. I don't remember that population. Yeah, the boat lift. Yeah, and uh, it, they had like a Frank Gehry type construction. It was carpolian it was canvas it was cardboard but it was a lean-to and and so so those were also structures that you saw underground as well but this connection between margin and mainstream was also important because people actually who would live underground for for a time would also go above ground to get food go to go to a a, a soup kitchens, uh, go up to ask for, make make money, because there was a working homeless population there as well. Um, they would go up and, for example, search for books, get books from supers, sell those books, or make arrangements to sell them for other, sell them to other people. Um, uh, there were people who, of course, who did various kinds of cons, above ground. So I so I talk about this margin and mainstream connection and how people were surviving. But it, it was important to look at this as a, a working population. We've forgotten that this idea of who we call the homeless was really a part of a world that we uh we lionized for a time. You know, uh when you think about Guthrie and you think about even Dylan and others, um who wrote about what is called the hobos, they were not considered to be disposable at that point in time. People saw them as, as part of the urban lore. Uh, and so something happened, of course, between then and now, where we now would see this population as disposable and, uh, of course, um, as seen as, as uh, uh, criminals. So this criminalizing the poor is now part of the 
part of what we what we hear in the same population. So anyway, I was writing all about those elements. Um, so I, I want to go back to sort of of how, what you think sort of is is the reason for that transition. But but talking about sort of work, one of the things uh, that I think is particularly interesting is you talk about uh, another way that some folks are living is by collecting uh, cans and reclaiming the deposit. But you talk about sort of the the social function that that fills for the rest of the city as well. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which all of us who live here in New York actually benefit from folks who are collecting cans? Well, one of the things that we see all the time is the tremendous detritus that's on the street. Cans prior to the law, the bottle law, uh, cans and bottles were everywhere. And of course, it, it, it really littered the streets. With this new law, of course, people started using cans and, and picking up cans and actually cleaning up the city. So that's that's part of what what we're seeing going on here. Um, and so I, I see that it's just just um, a way that we can avoid the kind of stereotyping um, and seeing this population as a sometimes migratory, uh, but um, a population that for the most part is providing a kind of um, a working homeless population, if you will. And uh, and we need to sort of give credit to them for doing that. Um, so that's maybe a, a good segue to ask why it why is it that that folks don't have what we would identify as a more traditional permanent residence, and why do they choose to live in this space underground rather than elsewhere? People feel that shelters, for example, are, da are more dangerous than the spaces they live underground. They also find it difficult to to see any kind of, I guess you could say, any kind of respect associated or dignity uh, associated with shelters. Shelters are also expensive. You know, people think that shelters are, 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 are free, but they aren't. People have to pay to live in these shelters for the most part. And it's also difficult for, for anyone to, to live in these spaces with the kind of surveillance that exists in the city. Surveillance is part of the, the phenomenon that we are also not in, not including in our understanding about this. And, um, and so I think it's, uh, um, it, it's something that we need to just take a, a closer look at. So that's why they were living in this underground space as opposed to other places. Why were they homeless or why were they without traditional uh, shelter in the first place? I, I make this point that homelessness is not just a crisis, but a condition. What condition is that? For the most part, everyone that I talk to has suffered a certain amount of trauma. And that trauma is, is everything from a loss of a, of a, a loved one, um, loss of a job, um, um, some kind of toxicomania issue, that is to say drug misuse issue, all of these, all of these reasons, or, or some that account for the reason people are are homeless, and um, and so and so part of that story is about that as well, that this idea that the, that the homeless is is part of a condition that is tips uh, that's that's um, set up by these kind of traumas, individual traumas, and um, to a person. 
uh, a person has lost something. So this idea of, of loss plays a role in the story. Yeah. There's a, a, a fairly recent book you may well know called uh, uh, Homelessness is a Housing Problem um, that looks uh, sort of geographically uh, at, at rates of, of homelessness across the United States. And one of the arguments that they make is that geography is hugely important here, right? We all for the most part, encounter crises over the course of our lives. Those could be, as you say, some kind of a trauma. Those could yes. be emotional, uh, uh, economic crises, loss of a job, loss of a partner, loss of a parent. And where you are and the kinds of institutional supports that are available to you may make the difference as to whether you're able to emerge out the end of that crisis uh, or not, or wind up, mm -hmm. right, sort of... of with, with sort of uh, unstable housing at the very least. Something that we have to realize is that people can only do do well when there is a, some kind of support network. Yep. And a lot of people underground did not have that. But at the same time, they did have some, at, at some point, connections to people above ground. How long and how much that help or assistance uh, came into their lives made the difference. Yeah. If people decided to to continuously assist people, then they got better. But for the most part, for example, Jason, who had a, a drug problem, his family was so sick and tired of what had happened with him. They were so sick and tired of giving him help after help after help that they decided they weren't going to do it anymore. And and I kept seeing this happen in, in, in different parts of this population, those who simply gave up, but they still, <clears throat> excuse me, they still provided some help at some point in time. They just didn't do it as long as one could normally as, uh, assume that they should. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that that you thought there was sort of this this relatively recent transition and and that we have moved into a space where we are what less empathetic, less sympathetic, less less concerned about the well-being of unhoused people and more likely to identify it as a crime problem say rather than a human services problem. Mm -hmm. Why do you think why, why do you think that is and and maybe how do we how do we get out the other end of that? Well, I might not be able to answer the second part of that <laughs> question, but the first part is 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 uh, I think it's is historically available to us, and that is we had what was once called a deserving and undeserving poor in this country, and that undeserving the, that deserving poor were those that we cared about, and we saw them and as as a, a kind of uh, hobos as heroes to a certain extent. But we also got to a point where we start to see uh, the poor who who were uh, who uh, were menacing, we started to see them as the underclass. And the underclass, of course, became criminalized. And we started to care less and less about that population. In fact, we started to see all the, that all of those in that population, Remember, they became increasingly, and if you've been around New York for a long time, you know, they increasingly became poor and black. They became poor and minority. And so when we, when we saw deserving poor, deserving poor were, for example, when I 
I first saw this population in the 1970s. They were called bag ladies. And mm. the bag ladies were simply 90% white, white, white women who walked around with bags. They had the shopping carts and all their, their good, all their, 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 um, their items that they carried with them. And they were still considered to deserving poor. And that population increasingly became more black, black male. You saw less and less of the deserving poor to the undeserving poor. And that's where we stand, where the, the, the criminal, the criminalizing of this population exists. And that's where we are now. So as is often the case, part of the answer here is we are in the United States. So race is almost always part of the explanation for any social phenomenon you are trying to make sense of. Yeah, uh, indeed. Um, as as a footnote, I don't know whether you know it. So speaking about what we used to call bag ladies, there's actually a movie that Lucille Ball made, uh, playing just such one of those women. I can't pull the name of it out of my head, uh, but was very much a sympathetic portrait. I missed that last point. You, you, you... oh, sorry, I was saying that that Lucille Ball uh, uh, oh. made a movie in which she actually portrayed one of the women who you're talking about in that oh, period. That right? it's a very sympathetic portrayal. Very sympathetic portrayal, and they are often hard to come by when you look at, say, movies about unhoused black men, in particular, for reasons that I mm -hmm. think we could probably uh, yeah. understand. So, so having spent decades sort of of getting to know these folks and 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 who they are and what kid is there a way to summarize recognizing that all people are different sort of how they think about their own state and their own condition and their own lives what have you learned about the ways in which they 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 internalize or do not these uh attitudes that often the rest of the world has about them one of the things that uh, I should mention is one of the characters, of course, is Bernard Isaac, very articulate man, almost considered a philosopher underground because we often talked about Plato and all all these other uh, uh, characters um, that that were of interest to us. But people have to have to realize that there are a few things that we should keep in mind. One is that in 1996. Cisneros, who was the HUD uh, secretary at the time, set up something called voucher system. And the vouchers were given to all the homeless people underground, which Bernard, of course, took um, and gave people <clears throat> these vouchers. And people actually found homes after they got those vouchers. This is something that we should think about doing again. I know there's com there's a, a new conversation emerging but that was really important. We know that housing, that affordable housing is something that we need to think about and do as well. And so I think there are a number of locations where people have uh, access to shelter, to food, and it's these kind of organizations that are important to maintain and to establish. We, we recently found out that the city has over $3 billion in surplus. Places like Grand Central Neighborhood, for example, which has a place called Main, Main, Main Chance, and they have other parts of that, that organization. These are entities that should be supported, and they can we can do more with this population if we establish these kind of, of, of entities. 
I don't know whether Stephen, that's enough to uh, uh, to uh, to answer your questions, but I appreciate you asking. And I'm happy to uh, have a conversation with you today. Thank you, Terry. You are listening to the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Terry Williams, who is the author of Life Underground, Encounters with People Below the Streets of New York from Columbia University Press. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank you.